Welcome to today's podcast brought to you by smallbusinesshorsepower.com. We're very pleased to have a great friend of mine, Mr. Randy Ralston with us. Uh, let me introduce Randy and then I'll get him on the line. Uh, I've known Randy now, I would say since uh, 1999, so 20 years working with Randy. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but I later found out one of the first times I met Randy and he came to check out our small business and our operation. I later found out that he was sent to fire me. So that's something that uh, I'll remember but we'll get through how that didn't happen and, and what happened. But getting back to Randy, Randy is a guy that works for a Fortune 100 company. And let me tell you something about Randy. He's worked in many divisions of his company in aerospace, in medical, in industrial businesses. And he's taken those skills a step further. He works with students both at the MBA and the bachelor's level at Minnesota State University at night, helping these people people realize their dreams. I've been there. I've been a guest on his class and it's absolutely fantastic. He helps people that are wanting to get that American dream and help uh, make a career for themselves or even someday start their own business. So with that, I want to welcome in Randy Ralston. It's a pleasure to have you on Small Business Horsepower. Randy, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here today. Thank you for having me and I look forward to talking to you today. Randy, pleasure is all ours. And uh, let me start with your background. You know, we always talk about it. You came from uh, Amarillo, Texas, and, you know, your father was a railroad conductor and your, your mom was a self-employed hairstylist. And what you learned from your father working in the railroad and so on, and how do you feel that had a big influence on your life and your career? I think my father was a guy that would work really hard and he would do what he had to do for his family. But what I learned the most from my dad was the fact that if he had some spare time because of his job, he worked on the train for two days, for two full days, 24 hours, and then he would be back for the rest of the week. So five days of the week he was around. And sometimes that meant that he wasn't home for Christmas or he wasn't home for one of the birthdays or holidays that we would you know wish our dad was there. But we had Christmas was on a different day those years. And we just sort of made the best of that part of the situation. But dad would always go out and take us to the playground and take us to the baseball diamond and play sports with us pretty much all of his other spare time. And he taught us a lot of different skills. My dad's a really good woodworker and really good at a lot of things. Actually, he's a wood carver now in his retirement, and he's just really an inspiration. But he taught some hard lessons about working hard and doing what you have to do to make sure that your family is provided for. And he was always instilling that when I was a kid in me. So he was an inspirational dad and sometimes a hard dad to work with. He wasn't easy all the time. And now we have a different relationship as an adult and we have a lot better, more friendly relationship in that sense. And so it's been pretty exciting to see the evolution of that relationship through the years. And I see that knowing you personally like I do, I see that in your kids too. I mean, they've followed suit with you. You're a guitar player and I see during this COVID-19 crisis, you're doing a tremendous job of playing guitar for an audience on Facebook every night. And I see your kids are musically inclined and, and they're right next to you playing and so on and so forth. So It's a lot of fun. That's been kind of a fun side effect of this situation we're in right now where we're all at home for an extended period of time is that we're playing music together and spending time as a family. That's great. And then you transition, Randy, from Amarillo, Texas, and um, 
let's say you ended up, and this is not in the exact order, but you ended up at Pepperdine doing an MBA. Now you're in Southern California, and I'm sure that's a lot different than Amarillo, Texas. Uh, tell me about that, like ending up in Southern California right next to the beach. Was that a big transition for you? Well, I, I wasn't the most driven undergraduate student you've ever met. In fact, you know, some people were surprised when I graduated because I just didn't put a lot of effort into into the time that I was a student. And I barely scraped out of my undergraduate education. And it just wasn't something important to me. What was interesting and what I kind of learned through the MBA experience going to Pepperdine was I started off class. First class that I took was a microeconomics course with a professor named Elwin Gripanian. And Dr. Gripanian was a fascinating guy. He started the first class, as all professors do, explaining their backstory and talking about the syllabus and explaining what the course was going to be. But in the explanation about himself, he was talking about how he was in the Oval Office talking to the president one day was kind of the introduction to his sentence that he was going to do to, that he was going to explain himself with. And it was uh, fascinating because I had never heard anything like that in my life. I never knew anyone that had known a president before. And so I had the same experience at Pepperdine as that first semester, each semester. I had really amazing professors that taught, they inspired me, first of all, and it made me want to come to class and be a great student. And I was when I applied myself. But it was also a lesson for me that if I had just tried a little harder when I was younger, I could have gone to a better school and had better professors all along and could have been more stimulated through the years. It was an interesting experience to go through a better school that had top-notch professors. And I learned a lot from not just the classes, but what I could have done before to be better. Yeah, and I think when I come and do guest lecture once a year, when we go walleye fishing, let's get to that. But when we do that and I come up to Minnesota State to talk to your class, I see that in you is that you want these people right up front to know that effort they put in can really guide their career based on what you went through. It's important to convey that. And I think I'm a better teacher now because of my experience when I was younger and I wasn't really a dedicated great student. I do try to explain things in different ways for different communication styles. So I'll try to understand how they communicate and try to meet them where they are. And that's sort of my approach teaching. And Randy's a great walleye fisherman too, until you get one that's bigger than him. And then that's uh, something you have to deal with there. And ladies and gentlemen, he will check to make sure you're within regulation that you you put the leech on the hook and so on and so forth. But uh, he's a competitive guy, but so am I. And we have a, a great fun with that. So there's a backstory and we have to tell the backstory so people that are listening will understand. So Mayhul didn't want to touch leeches the first year that we went walleye fishing. And he was asking our fishing partner, Rob or I, to put the leeches on the hook every time. And they're just sort of squishy and they're not something that are fun to touch necessarily. But they're okay. You get used to it. As Mayhul has learned later, I sort of forced him into learning. I caught a big fish and then we measured it. And then later on in the day, he caught a big fish. And the lip was an eighth of an inch longer than mine or two eighths. I mean, it's just a, it's a really short length longer than the fish that I caught. And I explained to him that if he didn't put the leech on the hook, that wasn't really his fish. So poor Mayhole was suffering the rest of the trip to try to catch a bigger fish after he started putting the leeches on the hook. So I had to razz him for not touching the leeches. Randy, tell me about working for a big company because uh, 
our listeners, smallbusinesshorsepower.com. Again, we're very happy to have Randy Ralston with us, who works for a Fortune 100 company and uh, is fantastic at what you do. But having said that, Randy, when you work for a large company, one, how do you navigate that? And then the thing that I've always been impressed about you, Randy, learning from the day I first met you is how do you relate what small businesses can do and their struggles and what they go through and translate that into receiving the message the way that big companies want to receive it. So how do you reconcile that? You have the experience working in business for a long time like I have and moving around within a big organization to a lot of different roles and a lot of different businesses that each time you go to a different business, there's a choir of people that are singing the My Business is Different song. They always want to tell you how their business is not the same as the business you came from, so you don't understand. And I think that's probably my biggest learning through the years is that business is business. And it doesn't really matter if you're talking about a big business or a small business or industrial or healthcare. It doesn't really matter. The differences are less than the similarities. And I think working within a big company to help them to interact with smaller companies and companies like yours, Mehul, when we were interacting, part of what I was trying to do was to take the things that a big company cares about and what makes them understand that your value and help you to be able to explain that, to put the business language that was needed to be able to explain the value you could bring to the organization. And so you recall that we started off with a plan to try to get more geography and more expanded product offerings within the the company. And that was your goal. And we spent a lot of time building a business plan to talk about your business and how you could come into the marketplace and have those added geographies or those added product offerings, and you would be additive to the market. You would help the company grow faster and better, and you wouldn't cannibalize the existing business. And you went into great depth. I kind of forced you to go into date great depth. Remember, we went and sent revisions back and forth for months. It wasn't weeks of work. You put it together, and then we worked on it for a long time to build a business plan to explain what you were planning to do with that expanded geography. I do think that no matter how big your company is, you have to be able to tell the story. So your ability to put together a business plan, and there are tons of great business plans just out on the World Wide Web. If you go to Google Advanced Search and look for business plan templates, you can get a lot of different templates that you can go fill out And it will help you explain to a company you're interacting with or to a bank or to a venture capitalist what you're worth. And that was what I think helped kind of open the door for you. Right. I think that's a great point, Randy. And I think that when I look at one of the things that I was weak at, and I'm sure other entrepreneurs and small businesses face, is we have a great business plan. In fact, our business plan is probably more detailed than anybody else, except there's only one problem. That business plan is all in our head. And so when it's all in our head, and I think that's to your point, that's great for us and what we're doing. But now when we're trying to explain it to a Fortune 100 or a larger company or a partner that we need to partner with as we grow our business, how do we put that on a piece of paper in a way that's concise and makes them understand? Because I, you 
know me, I love to talk and get into all kinds of subjects, but if you're on the other side of that glass, you figure these executives, they're so busy because they're working with 20 other companies like you and you're vying for their attention and time, right? And they want something that stands out fairly quickly. Am I correct? Yes, they need simplicity. They need simple, concise economy of language when you're explaining any of this because they don't have a lot of time. So yes, all that what you're saying is true. Right. And that's what we were able to do where, and Randy, for our listeners, is better than this than just about anyone I've ever met where I can write down 25 points of all kinds of stuff that I want to convey to his management at his company. And he can look at that and really get down to the basics that are going to matter. And I think that that's really why I really wanted him in essence, besides the fact that he's a great friend, is I wanted him on the podcast because I've never seen anyone that can do that the way he has the ability to really narrow it down and take that message to management. You executed on that so well too, though. When I gave you when you had your 25 bullet points and I got it down to three or five, I don't remember how many. In order to try to pitch this, we were not able to get an appointment for him to come make that pitch. We were at a trade show and we were talking to each other. You know, cell phones were new at that point and we were doing some, some James Bond stuff. We were calling each other and I was letting him know when the right people were in the booth so that he could come walk into the booth at the right time and talk to the right people. And he came in, I introduced him, he delivered his five bullet points that had been condensed down from 25 and pitched them really effectively because after he was done, he shook their hand and said, thank you very much and got up and walked away just like I suggested to him and it worked well, right? Worked out for you. Well, the part that Randy isn't saying is he got me on the phone a couple weeks before and he said, I'm getting you in front of these people. And then I was like, yeah, Randy, these people, I know them and all. And, he, you know, Randy got right to the point and he said, look, I don't know what's happened in the past, but let me tell you something. The guy you're going to meet, he doesn't like you. I said, what? <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm just telling you, I don't know what you did to that guy. I don't care. I'm just telling you, he doesn't like you. So I'm going to get you in front of him and you're going to have about, you know, 10, 15 minutes to make that first and only impression on that gentleman as to whether you're going to get into this group of distributors that they were hiring for the first time at that time. And he says, all I can do is get you in front of them, but no going in that they don't like you. I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> holy moly. <laughs> well, that's intimidating. And you faced the challenge with courage and you went and did it. You, you pitched it well. I had to. I'm like, oh my God, they don't like me. But Randy was like, hey, stick to what they want to hear and what your message is. Don't worry and don't get into all the backstory and don't worry about all that. And I think that's important for our businesses to know because we all have egos, right, Randy? We all want to think that we know something special, especially me. But at the end, exactly. I mean, I'm, I know it. But at the end, we all have a story to tell. We just have to simplify it and tell our story. And I think if your story is believable and people can relate to it, you can go forward. So I really... And speaking of that, what about that first time, Randy, that you came out... San Diego, California, and we played racquetball together. I tell you, this guy, Randy, he, he's a big guy, but uh, he wiped me up in racquetball at the uh, first time we played, and uh, he destroyed me. I was so mad. I went out 
I got in trouble for that. Oh, you did? Well, I got in trouble from my wife. I came home and told my wife what happened, and she said, you're supposed to let the customer win. And so I said, I never let anybody win. I still, to this day, my kids, I never let them win. If they win, it's because they won. So he comes, he destroys me in racquetball, but I'm a competitor too. I said, I, I went home, I told my wife, I said, this guy, he's huge. He destroyed me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hire a teacher. So I found in San Diego County, a lady that was ranked number one in the world at one time. And I started taking lessons from her and, and it will save that from another podcast. I'd love to get her on the line. But uh, I came back, Randy came back at a year later and I not only beat him, but the guy, he Unfortunately, he slipped heading to the back wall and he ended up splattered all over the court. And uh, I personally didn't know if he was going to get up from the court, to be honest with you. Well, you almost you almost killed me, you know, but it's OK. I survived. And then he came to my house. Tell that story, Randy, when you walked into that. Well, my wife and I had when we redid our house after we had that fire in it, which is another story, maybe for another podcast. But when we redid that house we built an office for her and for us in the back. And uh, we had that set of, uh, well, you tell the story, Randy, on that. Yeah, I was sent out. We were going through a kind of a time of consolidation at that point, And I was working with different customers. We were selling through channels and selling product to different places in the world. And we had been given marching orders to go out and look at our customer base and determine which channels were too small to do business with, which ones cost too much to do business with. And it turns out that Mayhole was on my list of businesses that didn't bring back as much as it was costing. So they sent me out with marching orders to terminate quite a few contracts with customers. And what happened during that trip was really fascinating. We went out and had our daily meetings. Um, nothing had been decided, but it was going that direction and had our meetings during the daytime. And Mayhole invited me over for dinner, if I recall right. And I remember while you were making barbecue, I was one wandering around and looking at your paintings on the walls and different things in your house, the fish tanks and your office. And I saw that you had this beautiful, glorious, brand new set of Encyclopedia Britannica. And I remember as a kid, the Encyclopedia Britannica guy coming to our house and showing us these really cool encyclopedias that my family couldn't afford. We just didn't get them because they were so expensive. And they did have them at the library. And I just remember my parents talking about it and deciding that it cost too much money to buy a set for our house. But this is late 90s early 2000s, and people didn't really have Encyclopedia Britannicas in their house anymore, but Mayhul Sheth had them in his house, so it was notable. And internet was already coming up, so that was not something you saw very much out there, and so I brought it up. At the barbecue, I asked the question, or I asked him to tell me about the Encyclopedia Britannica, and Mayhul explained that when he was starting his business, he had gone door-to-door -door selling Encyclopedia Britannica and was the top salesperson in the country. And he got a free set as a prize for being the top salesman. So he was doing that to raise extra money for his company. What that told me was that if you're selling something like that in a really tough marketplace, you're a salesperson. You can sell anything. And so what we really needed to do rather than take a business that could be successful and 
terminate the business, we needed to point your business in the right direction. And that was a better decision than trying to place our bets on some other company. So that was sort of the Encyclopedia Britannica is what um, kept me from doing the termination of your contract and moving forward in a different way. That's great. And I'm so glad you never told me that story till years later when I came to lecture your class. I broke it to my class and me who what was really going on about... I don't know how many years ago, six or seven years ago, when he was in front of the class giving a presentation explaining about small business. And I told the story so that he would know about it. The class would, too. And he was kind of surprised, but he laughed and kept on going. Randy, um, let me ask you a question here. Have you ever thought of starting your own small business? I mean, you've worked in this corporate world. You've worked, as I've said, in various industries, whether it's healthcare, inside the same company, but you've worked in a company that's had many divisions, healthcare, aerospace, industrial. And when you've worked in these units, you've been in a business onto itself. Have you ever thought about branding? out yourself and investing your own money and starting a small business or you always envisioned that you would work for a corporation? I've not ever really seriously thought about it. There have been thoughts that have crossed my mind through the years. But for my situation, the risk that is to have a small business and the aspect of being able to have my finances not be disturbed too much, that's part of the reason behind why I haven't ever decided to do anything. When you work in a big company like I do, there is some financial stability and security, especially during times like this with the coronavirus going on and a lot of smaller businesses having to close their doors for an extended period of time. It's really tough. And so I can really empathize with a lot of you out there that are trying to run your business when the environment is like this. One of the great parts of working in a big company is that the stability level is there. There's there's more stability during a time like this. But of course, the risk is everywhere, right? So it's not less risk that you can bank on. It's just a little bit lower risk, I think, when you work in a large organization. Yeah, having worked, I would say, I don't know if you agree with me, I would think that years ago, when you really signed up for one company and you could be there as from cradle to grave from when you start to retirement, those days you don't see as much. You don't see people last forever in those companies. But there's still that security, right? That someone is paying your check for you as long as you do a good job rather than whether you do a good job or not, you have to come up with your own paycheck? You really have to do a lot of the same things that you do in a small business. Now, like last year, I got a really good rating at my company, but that was last year. So now I have to figure out how to reinvent myself and how to bring value in 2020 in a tough environment. I have the same challenges that a small business has. You have to reinvent yourselves and you have to figure out how you can bring value to your customers in a unique and interesting way that they're willing to pay for in the future, now and in the future. And it doesn't matter how well you did in the past. When you look at all these small businesses that were doing really well, maybe for a long time, and then they go out of business, it's because they didn't do that. They didn't reinvent themselves and figure out how they would bring value. And I think it's true in the context of a large business or a small business that you have to bring value and you have to reinvent yourself every every year. That's a great point. 
And especially nowadays, because the market changes so fast, doesn't it? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, with this internet and social media and the, the speed of how we can communicate with each other, I think has a drastic impact that we can communicate so much faster, like through this podcast than we ever could. But the other side of that, right, is that you have to react so much faster and change versus your competition so much faster. You agree with that, Randy? It's part of what I teach in school, you know, so I'm teaching at Minnesota State University and I teach business strategy. And I think it was easier to make it without having a great strategy, without having a great plan in the past because markets moved slower. Products didn't get developed as quickly and you didn't have a me too product that came to challenge you within months like you do now. These days, the markets move really fast, communication's terribly quick, and you don't have long life cycles on your products and your services. You have to figure out how to do something better more quickly, and you need to be able to move more quickly. So strategy is more important today than it ever was. Well, Randy, boy, the time really flew, and uh, I just want to tell you that you're a great friend, and you're very, one of the most talented people I've ever met in my life. I mean, you do it all, woodworking, guitar, so many things that you do, and you're not, you just don't do them. Like, I do things, but you're good at it. I mean, you're really good at just about everything you do, whether it's a technical basis, sales basis. So I'm really proud of what you've been able to accomplish. And I want to thank you for joining us and our listeners on smallbusinesshorsepower.com. And uh, we'd love to have you back if you come back in the future, Randy. It's my pleasure. I would love to come back anytime. Randy, thanks so much for joining us again on Small Business Horsepower. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mabel.